If you would open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. While you are turning there, I just wanted to uh, add a word to the announcements. The uh, series that Tim does, the Faith and Youth series or Family Youth series that he does, and the one that he's doing, this, uh, the one that's coming up. So I want to encourage you to uh, really think about attending. Um, that the issues that he's going to be talking about, uh, we need to recognize that they are issues, moral, they have moral implications, they are moral issues, they have political implications, they have social implications. When it comes to a figure that we are familiar with, which is a large number of young people, that when they grow up in a Christian home and then go on to university or what have you, they tend to walk away from the faith. There's different reasons why that happens. One of them is, is because it seems that the church as a whole doesn't respond to the trends in our culture. The trends in our culture may sound like they're just wild and crazy and no one really believes those things, but they do. And, and the issues he's dealing with when it comes to the body, he's going to be dealing with the, the what is the push, what is the thinking behind the transgender and all those issues that go with that, those kinds of things. People take those things very seriously. Uh, there are those who use them for their own gain. Uh, it's just another way for people to do their own thing, to, to excuse their sin. Maybe even not necessarily in that area, but they want, they're willing to promote that area so that this other area can be promoted or at least left alone. So what Tim's going to be talking about, again, is really important. Um, it's not just a kind of... Uh, nice little thing that he does and that the information he's going to give is just real obvious. You know, when we think sometimes he's going to be talking about the body and how God intended the body to be used, sometimes we, have, we, we tend to think this, oh yeah, I know that. God wants us to be pure and we need to be thankful. And then we think that's all there is to it. And there's so much more to it than just that. Uh, there's, there's a great deal that's important. So whether it's your kids, whether you have kids or you have grandchildren, uh, you're going to want to know um, about these issues. There are some books we can recommend that you read. Most people don't like to read. So take advantage of Tim's reading and studying and let him tell you uh, what they say, and then you'll, you'll have it down, and uh, you'll be good to go. But I just, just want to emphasize to you that um, the things that he's going through are, in a sense, cutting edge, but it's not cutting edge like, oh, this is cool, we can go to it, uh, but it's cutting edge and that it is, is, it is extremely relevant uh, to where we are right now in the day and age which we live in. And most of us will agree that things are not getting better. Things are getting worse, and they're getting worse at a very rapid pace. And, and the, the, the scripture does have an answer, but you cannot explain or discover the answer in 30 seconds. Uh, it's much more complicated than that. So you, if you don't want to come and eat the dinner he's making, then I don't know who's cooking, but you know, then just come for the study part. Uh, but I want to encourage you to think about it and maybe mark it on your calendar because I think you'll find that it's very much worth your while. Anyway, let's pray, and then uh, we'll read from 2 Corinthians. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that your word does have the answer to all the issues that we are facing today. It seems, Lord, that our society, that our culture is caught up in just absolute insanity. And we cannot believe, Father, that individuals are saying the things that they're saying, and they're thinking the way they are thinking, but they are. Now, Father, this requires from us more than just 
uh, a sigh more than just a, an expression of good grief. We can't believe that is happening, but it requires a reasoned response from us uh, that is rational, that is based on the truth of your word, that is something that can be understood. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to continue to seek the answers from your word. Help us, Father, to be well-informed. And, Father, this morning, as we continue our study and looking at uh, the very serious issues that we face as individuals, that individuals in our society face, we pray that you would increase our empathy and our compassion for those around us. We pray that you help us to come to a deeper and a better understanding of what we possess in Christ. And that, Father, also that we would be better equipped to be able to give an answer to help those who are suffering. Because, Father, there are many, many people that are suffering today. Uh, And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be able to explain how it is that there really is an answer in the gospel of Christ. So we thank you. Thank you, Father, for your presence. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. Last week, as we, uh, um, as we dealt with this passage a little bit and dealt with the issue that we're facing, it was kind of a, uh, I guess you would say, a dark sermon dealing with a very serious issue that oftentimes is not really discussed uh, as it should be. Uh, I think that we need to think about those things because we often at least imply that Christ is the answer. We imply and tell people that if they come to Christ, that there is healing, that there is comfort. But I think we often find ourselves unable to explain how. But not only with that, I think that because of our, at times, inability to be able to explain how, that also has an effect on us. And we begin to retreat a little bit. And we begin to doubt if Christianity really has an answer. We begin to doubt if the gospel of Christ really can heal individuals. We begin to move back, uh, I guess, in our thinking to something that I was very familiar with in the 70s. I just noticed this, even though I was a dumb teenager. It seemed to be gaining steam. And now the phrase that I'm going to give you is not so much repeated, but I think it's assumed as being true. And that is, again, this, that the Bible as good is good for as far as it goes. We limit the Bible. We may not intentionally do that, but we do that. We tend to think that there are some issues that are so serious or so deep, not that salvation is not a serious issue, but we're thinking in terms of the life that we live now, we're thinking that there are certain issues, maybe certain psychological issues, certain things that people have gone through or are going through that are so deep that it is beyond the scope of the gospel. We believe that God can heal that person. But as far as the information in the scripture, we think that these things are beyond what the scripture says, beyond the reach of the word of God. 
and we, and we don't intend to do this always, but it's almost as if we're saying that we need to turn our back on the Bible and we need to go to science and medicine for the answer. As if those things are unrelated to each other. And they're not unrelated. And you should know by now that just because science says something doesn't mean it's true. There are many things in science that are true. But science has changed its mind on a lot of things. Because they were wrong. Same thing in medicine. The advances we've made in medicine is fantastic. We've also had to undo a lot of our thinking. I don't know if you're aware of this, but when it comes to fixing, uh, maybe you may have some what they call garbage in your knee. There's some pieces of cartilage they need to take out. And they they make a little incision, and they take it out, and they put a Band-Aid on, and and you're on your way. You go, and you're fine. Well, back in 1976, when I hurt my knee, I had torn my ACL, so they had to do a reconstruction. I also had some torn cartilage. But this was the theory back then. If you have torn cartilage... Take it all out. And we all know, if you've just watched a few commercials, that individuals suffer today because they have bone on bone grinding in their knee. Well, they did that to me on purpose. And so I had to go through years where, in the beginning, it didn't hurt. Then it did after a while. And so, you know, we, they had their, I had to have a knee replacement in part because I had this grinding that went on for some 30 years. And so medicine and, and science have been wrong before. Much of it is, is true and helpful. But when it comes to the issues of the soul, when it comes to the issues of our emotions, when it comes to our psyche, when it comes to the psychology of man, which again, psychology, the study of the soul, the Bible is the best book there is. The problem is, is again, is we don't look at it deep enough or, or broadly enough. And so that's why... We've been dealing with the things we've been dealing with and why last week I began to delve into uh, some of the specifics, but also in general, those who are suffering from the effects of trauma they've experienced in their childhood. And that's a very real thing. And there's very real issues that people have to face with. And so I'm not going to go through all that again, obviously. And, and if you missed that, I would encourage you to go online and listen to it. I think it'd be very, very helpful for you, not only in the information that was given, but in the Uh, coalescing with what we're going to be finishing up today. Again, one of the verses we read, which is from Proverbs 18, which simply says, a man's spirit can endure sickness, but who can survive a broken spirit? And there are many individuals who go through the kind of trauma that it breaks their spirit. They're able to survive barely. They they can get along physically, but there's a a lot that's going on that, that again affects them in every aspect of their life because your soul, your mind, your emotions... Uh, goes with you wherever you go and is involved in every aspect of every relationship that you have. And there are times that we suffer greatly as a result of that, not just when we're alone and thinking about the past, but even in our conscious relationships with others that we think have nothing to do with what's gone in the past, that relationship can be affected very negatively because of that. I want to remind you of, of two things the church is guilty of, two exclusive claims that are both wrong, um, even though... You, you, there may be a little bit of truth in each, but you have to be very careful with that. But there's two exclusive claims that I mentioned last week. One is there's this teaching that Christ insists on a certain kind or a certain pace of recovery for the wounded. And what I mean by that is the idea that even though you may have gone through all kinds of trauma, you're a Christian now. You should be over it. Or you've been a Christian for a couple of years. You should be over it. 
It should no longer affect you. That's not realistic and that's untrue. God does bring healing, absolutely. And you can get to a point to where you can function uh, because it's almost as if you have been almost completely healed. That happens. But there is no timetable for everyone. For some, it may be really miraculous that after being a believer for a year, that they are just seem to be so well-adjusted and are handling things terrific. Others, it may linger for 10, 15 years. And they find themselves continually having to depend upon the Lord to get them through maybe sometimes just a day because of what's been happening or what has happened. The other claim is this, and that is that somehow that because of your trauma, you are now have a lifelong psychological deal or issue to deal with. And that it almost becomes central to your life. It becomes your identity. The idea is that you almost really never get over it. That is untrue as well. And so Christians sometimes err in falling into one of those two camps. So again, I want to remind you the three questions that we're dealing with. Number one, how can we name trauma? As an individual has gone through some kind of trauma, how can we name trauma without excusing (coughs) someone entirely for awful patterns of sinful and destructive symptoms? The idea being there, and this is accepted in our society, that an individual is behaving in a particular way in their 30s because of what happened in, in, in when they were a teenager or when they were a child. And that somehow, because of what happened before, that excuses this behavior here. It doesn't. But some people are afraid that if we actually talk about or name what has happened to them, that, that we are excusing their behavior. We're not excusing anything. But we still have to face with the fact that things have happened. So it is not an excuse, and it's not a reason uh, justifying whatever they're doing now, whether they're mistreating people, taking drugs, uh, whatever it happens to be. You can, there could be a whole laundry list of different things that they may be doing. But it never excuses it, but we don't have to, to try to be so afraid of excusing this that we deny that this has happened. The second thing uh, is, is this, is how uh, can we address trauma with clarity, love, and honesty without letting it control or consume us? It's very difficult to deal with individuals who allow whatever, whatever real things have happened to them in the past, when they allow that to dominate every aspect of their life. It is as if they are feeling sorry for themselves. We, we sometimes don't want to say that because it sounds like we're having no sympathy for the individual. We can still say that and have great sympathy for the individual. Many of us have been through stuff. Some of us much worse than others. But none of us are allowed to or should allow those things to control us. I, I expect non-believers to have those issues. I expect some believers to have those issues, but to get better because of what Christ does for us. Remember that our relationship with Christ is a very real thing. It's not just something that we just kind of talk about, and we may have a few good feelings when we come to church, but it really doesn't do much for us Monday through Saturday. And that is a view that many individuals, without saying it, kind of... That's their view of Christianity, even for some believers, that's their view of Christianity. We also want to ask ourselves, how can we speak of Christ without over-promising? In other words, we don't want to just, again, pretend that everything is going to be well when it may not be well with them. So, last week we covered just one thing, because I want to cover about five. When it comes to dealing with how does God help us, how does the gospel help us deal with these things so we can move forward, so they can be healing. So there's certain things we, know we want to make note of. Number one is that God does remember. In other words, he remembers the evil that we have that has been perpetrated on us. He remembers our trauma. 
uh, it was alluded to in the prayer this morning. It's from Nahum 1, verse, the first part of verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power. The Lord would never leave the guilty unpunished. That is a source of comfort for those who have been hurt by others. That is a sense of justice. There's a healing component to us. You've seen on the news many individuals who maybe have had a loved one who was murdered 25 years ago. And no one was ever held responsible. And they think they know who did it. And let's say that they're right on who they think they know who did it. And that ended, suddenly somebody opens up this cold case and they're able to nail it. And that individual not only goes on trial, they are then found guilty and they're sentenced. And even though in a sense it doesn't bring back the dead, it brings about a sense of closure, a sense of healing, because there's been justice that's taking place for those individuals that are grieving the loss of the one who was killed. And there's truth in that. And I do believe that for those who end their life physically, they, they, in other words, they, they grow old and they die, and there are certain aspects of their life that, that they've never seen or experienced justice. The way that we're able to move ahead is even non-believers have this, and that is the sense that those who have gotten, seem to have gotten away with evil, they're going to be held accountable and punished for what they've done. And that's, that's true. We know that as believers that's going to happen. But there's, there's a healing that is in that. Not complete healing, but there is a healing element of that that's important. The second thing that we need to notice is that when you read the Word of God, God has preserved stories of great trauma in the Bible for our benefit. The Bible declares that these things of old have been been preserved for us, for our benefit. God has preserved them. God has preserved every word of the Bible. He's not just preserved the passages on our salvation. Thank goodness that was preserved, but he's preserved all of this. And when you read through the Bible, it doesn't skip over some of these nasty, mean, horrible, traumatic things just to get back to the main point that God loves us and wants to save us. That is there. That is continuing through the entire word of God. But there are details of stories that are given us that sometimes some may wonder, why is this here? Why is all this detail here? Well, remember this, that the process of recovery normally is not immediate. God speaks about trauma with great precision. You don't find in the Bible only ambiguous terms like darkness or shame. It talks about what has actually happened. It's not crass about it. It's not oversharing. God is not bulldozing every conversation with its weight where that's all that there is in the Bible. But God does encourage and embrace the nuance. And what I mean by that is this. There are some awkward stories that sometimes we may even hesitate to read to our children when they're certain ages. The story of Judah and Tamar. If you're not familiar with that, Genesis 38. I'm not going into detail because they don't have time. But uh, I'm not afraid to do that. But these, these can be awkward. So if you have a five-year-old, you may want to skip this one until later. Um, then there's a the story of a Levite and his concubine in Judges 19. Uh, you know, there are certain passages that are never preached. We did preach this one because Tim did it um, on a Sunday evening. Uh, but that's a, that's a gory, bad story. There's just nothing good about it. Judges 19 is there. And this atrocity is laid out for us. Then there's the story of Amnon and Tamar, which is a, a man raping his half-sister in 2 Samuel 13. Why is all of that there? God is very much aware of all that goes on. Nothing slips his attention. 
He doesn't gloss over it and pretend that it's all okay. That doesn't happen. And we need to understand that. These are ugly stories. They are awful stories. They are very traumatic experiences. There, we could say this. It becomes clear that God didn't intervene to prevent the abuse because we always know in the back of our mind that God could have. God did not micromanage the suffering. He did not give the victims a clean and quick recovery. And there are times that it lasted for years. And so God then, in a sense, interrupts the big story of redemption with these short stories of lives that are interrupted by trauma and some that are never resolved in this life. You will always have this when you read through the Bible, at least we should have this. There's always a perspective that takes eternity into mind when you read through what the Bible says. Apart from this perspective of eternity, there is no reason for you and I to be nice to anyone. Because this life is all there is. And if somebody does something bad to you, then by all means, you should go out and exact revenge now. Because it's not happening later. But what we have in the Bible is this perspective that this is not all there is. That this is important. And that God does pay attention to all the details. And like we read again in Nahum, the guilty, they will never go unpunished. Never. Remember, that also goes back to the gospel. We mentioned that last week. That because some individuals, this is where the world sometimes gets upset. The world gets upset when we talk about forgiveness in this way. A man is found guilty of murdering 15 people. This man goes to prison. And while he's in prison, it becomes known that this man has found religion. And let's just say in this case, the man has. He's become a believer. And, and now Christians begin to talk about the fact that he is forgiven. And the non-believing world goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not right. He needs to pay for what he's done. You can't talk about forgiveness. You're doing wrong to all of those victims and all those families. Because you, you just cannot have a situation where this man's sin is, is not punished. And what we sometimes fail to do, and what we need to make sure that we do, is let them understand that the sins did not go unpunished. They did not go unpunished. God did not look at that man and say, just so you know, I'm going to pretend you didn't do all those things, and I'm going to save you because I'm a good God. That is not how salvation happened. The way it happened to that individual is, that individual placed his faith in Christ. And God is pleased with that. And God wants the individual to know that, that Christ took all of my anger that I have towards you for what you've done. What you have done to those people and that family is inexcusable and requires your death and punishment. But my son loved you with such a love, I then turned my wrath on him and punished him in your place. No sin goes unpunished. That's a universal law. No sin ever goes unpunished. It will always be, the punishment will be exacted from the individual who has perpetrated the offenses, or it will be exacted by their substitute. And there's only one substitute, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And so this makes a difference, and this teaches us that. God also speaks, thirdly, speaks specifically to the depths of our suffering. You know, not all prayers have to end with a victorious shout that God is great and that we have overcome. 
Read the book of Lamentations. It's a book of sorrows. Some have even described it as being a book that ends in a whimper. Trust seems to have been betrayed by a God who could have prevented the pain, by a friend who was supposed to protect, by a system that was supposed to defend us. The pain and the trauma run deep. No other book in the entire Old Testament contains only laments, as does the book of Lamentations. This book is marking the funeral of once of a very beautiful city, the city of Jerusalem. The chief focus of Lamentation is on God's judgment in response to Judah's sin. Another theme which surfaces is the hope found in God's compassion. Though the book deals with disgrace, it turns to God's great faithfulness and closes with grace as Jeremiah moves from lamentation to consolation. But it's not seen, it's not experienced. God's sovereign judgment represents represents a third current in the book, that God's holiness was so offended by Judah's sin that he ultimately brought the destructive calamity. God is the one who brings the calamity on those individuals because of the sin. Fourthly, because of the sweeping judgment seemed to be at the end, seemed to be the end of the of the of every hope of Israel's salvation and the fulfillment of God's promises, much of the book appears to be in a mode of a prayer. When you read through Lamentations, you have the wailing confession of sin. When you read the book, you have the prayer of anguish when God shuts out my prayer. And then there's the appeal to heaven for restored mercy. All based only on what? Faith. That God will come through. There's no victorious shout at the end of that book. It's a pleading with God that he will be faithful to what he said he would be faithful to. Of course, the book then, as you relate it to Christ, Jeremiah's tears compare with the tears of Jesus when Jesus wept over the same city of Jerusalem. Though God was the judge and the executioner, it was a grief to him to bring this destruction. But he did bring it. And, of course, there's the warning to everyone who reads the book. If God does not hesitate to judge his own beloved people, what will he do to the nations of the world who reject his word? And so, when we read through this prayer, when we read through that book, we see that God speaks specifically to the atrocities that are done. And judgment is coming. In Psalm 55, verse 16, it reads this way, But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning, at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from from of old, because they do not change and do not fear God, my companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And so as he recalls those who go against him, those who betray him, what he says is, I call on God, because he is convinced that God is enthroned and that God will answer. It is normal for us, even though it's normal for us to hope for a quick way of escape, it is important for us to understand our feelings and our circumstances. And even though that's important, it's far more important that we look to God and ask for his help. As we do sometimes unconsciously, When we go through times of difficulty, sometimes we do all these other things first, and then as a last resort, we turn to the Lord. I'm not saying all these other things should be left undone. We need to turn to God first. 
Remember that God is real. He really does hear our prayer. This is not just so we can pray so we can feel better because we've gotten it off our chest. We're not, we're not praying for the therapeutic effect. If you're just praying for a therapeutic effect, you can pray to anybody. We're praying to a very real being, the, the most powerful being that exists, the one who created and sustains the entire universe, one who has intervened on our behalf and on behalf of others and even more others in the scripture for centuries, one who has a pattern of faithfulness, and we turn to him to intervene, and he does, and he will. There was a time when David could no longer lead an army into battle, but he was able to pray. And he prayed that God would defeat the rebel forces, and God answered his prayers. Truth, then, can feel like a very heavy burden for the hurting, the truth of what has happened to them. But it is ultimately the only relief for the oppressed. Truthful words cut through the deceitful uses of Scripture and their accompanying half-truths. So again, read Lamentations, read Jeremiah, read the Psalms, in particular 3 through 12, those chapters. When abuse begins to isolate us, God shows up next to us when we're in the pit with words that are meant for those of us who are in the pit, words we never could have fully understood anywhere else. Many individuals have talked about the fact that when they were in, whether it's deep depression or when they were going through um, some great trauma and there was, they were feeling pressure. During those times when they read the word, it seemed that certain things kind of jumped off the page. It, was just, it brought greater comfort, greater strength. That's not, that's not some psychological thing. That's reality. That is the Spirit of God applying his word to our lives, bringing us that great comfort, feeding our soul with what it needs the most in a very real and tangible way. Fourthly, God gives us himself, even in the midst of triggers. You know what triggers are? Triggers is when the past interrupts the present, and it does so without warning. Those things, when, when something takes place, or when you, have a, when you smell something, or when you hear a song, or when you see a place, whatever it happens to be, and all of a sudden you, you feel this unexplained surge of anxiety or anger. The triggers that cause these things are neither good nor, or bad. In fact, often they are tools that our body gives us to protect us from future harm. But they can also become overactive and telling us that there is danger when there is none. Individuals sometimes in their response to the trauma in their past, even if it's a delayed response, begin to withdraw. It's one of the things we kind of do. We, we, we begin with, to withdraw from others or to withdraw from certain places. Or we just begin to withdraw, withdraw in a lot of ways. Maybe you withdraw your feelings first and you kind of put up that stone wall. But we do all those things because the idea is to protect ourselves. And one of the great things about the gospel of Christ is not only that it brings healing, but that the gospel of Christ, God is able to feed our soul and strengthen us so that we then once again can become vulnerable. Being vulnerable is not evil. You see, if, if we build up a wall, if, if we try to protect ourselves from further harm, because of the, maybe the very real things that have happened to us, you need to remember something, that that wall doesn't just keep out bad things. It keeps out good things. It keeps out everything. He, you're, the wall that you build doesn't rise and fall depending on your circumstance. So then if you allow that wall to go up, you then will experience less of the intimate love of your children or your grandchildren. 
your, your marriage would begin to suffer because that wall is up all the time. And so we, how does a person get to a point to where they are vulnerable again, where they can be hurt deeply? It's through the gospel of Christ. It is through the healing power of Jesus Christ himself. It is his presence with us. The man who, as the scripture tells us, experienced what we've experienced. He experienced rejection and betrayal and pain. So he truly understands. Our God himself has experienced these horrible and horrific things. And yet without sin. And so when the Bible talks about him understanding, he truly understands. He identifies with us. Because he has identified with us. Jeremiah 49 verse 11 says, Leave your orphans. I will protect their lives. Your widows too can trust me. Of course the problem is, is orphans still die. Widows die. What good does it to have God holding on to them? Forces of protection that once gave us a sense of stability and love are often ripped out of our arms. The traumatized are slapped with the realization of humanity's dire situation. The God who can do anything promises no circumstantial prosperity in this life because we're all still under the curse. That's what we learn when we read the Bible is that we're not insulated from these things. They're going to happen. When we speak of suffering in general, Christians normally never talk about if we suffer. It's always when. Now, those who do suffer much more severely than we do, but it's always a case of when. One of the things that, that we need to do when we present Christ to others is, is we want people coming to Christ with their eyes wide open. That's why we want to make sure they don't think that we're promising them that everything's going to be just flowers and fresh fruit and cool breezes. Now, that there's, no, there's no guarantee for that. I don't know if you remember this, but about four years ago, we showed a brief clip of a family uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, they, were, they were Muslims and they had become Christians. It was a, a mother, a father, and the two children. And in that clip, the mother talked about and asked the question, can you imagine what it's like to have a discussion with your eight-year-old daughter about the possibility of a day coming when men with guns will come into our home and will ask you to renounce Jesus? And if you don't, they will shoot your mother in the head. She had to have that conversation with her daughter because that was a very real possibility. They had to have that discussion with their son because that was a very real possibility. And in the story that we watched, that's exactly what happened. About a year later, they came in with the guns and they said they were going to kill mom and dad unless they said they hated Jesus. No one said they hated Jesus. They killed the father and they killed the mother. And they took the kids. The kids were abused. They were tortured. Later on, that little girl, as an adult, was in a safe place and was recounting what had taken place. No bitterness. No hatred for God. And understanding. Remember what Jesus said. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. The world hate, hated me first. And so we come in with our eyes wide open. Remember the Bible doesn't, share, doesn't shy away from this cruelty. Besides telling us that he will watch over the orphan and the widow, he also says this. Jeremiah chapter 9, beginning of verse 4. 
Beware of your friends. Do not trust your brothers. For every brother is a deceiver, and every friend a slanderer. Friend deceives friend. No one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to lie. They weary themselves with sinning. You live in the midst of deception. In their deceit, they refuse to acknowledge me, declares the Lord. When we get to the bottom of our triggers, when our triggers are telling us this tale about there being danger all around, anxiety is like a prophet of doom from a future of half-truths. The traumatized must feel their way through spiritual warfare like everyone else, and they do have a very peculiar handicap. But the Bible declares to all of us to trust and beware, step out and watch your step, but don't submit to the prison of your fear. You can, in the midst of that, have great, deep, and lasting joy. Remember that it's not your fault, but also don't start blaming everyone else for everything else. The gospel really can provide the impossible feelings of joy, hope, and love for those who are willing to embrace them with faith. It always comes back to that. They're willing to embrace those things with faith. And lastly, I borrow this from another guy who said it this way. He said, God gives us permission to feel with faith. He said this, we may feel insulted by that. I don't need God's permission. But the Bible creates space for us to feel and process our pain. If we will do it with faith, believing the promises of God, even when they feel too distant and unreliable. The isolation of trauma may seem even harder when we know there is a God who could bring resolution but doesn't. The Christian life often welcomes suffering. In fact, it can make experience of suffering even much more intense. 2 Corinthians 11. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman now with far greater labors, labors and far more imprisonments with countless beatings and I'm often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night. I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, and often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul was just saying that he's experienced all those things and more. He didn't lose hope. He still had the joy of the Lord. In fact... Maybe many things would be easier without Christ, in a sense. Perhaps even healing from trauma could be expedited if we didn't have to juggle our own recovery with the questions about God's sovereignty and evil. But we can be free. Remember that the church will never be perfect, will never be a perfect place in this age. The church may never be as informed as the trauma clinic. The church will never be as trained and as specialized as the therapist. The church may never be as warm as a childhood friend. There is no such thing as a perfect community, not yet anyway. And we need to make sure that we don't require that standard from others. Or, as a church, we need to make sure we don't pretend to meet it. It can feel really good to make promises that God doesn't make. Again, like Jesus will make the pain go away. Because sometimes he does in this life, and sometimes he doesn't. But it is important to know that trauma is not a life sentence. It is not something that has to control us forever. No trauma is bigger than God. It can be difficult to work through, even in the light of grace. It takes patience and boldness 
produced by the Spirit of God. But many have genuinely recovered, and more have learned to live grace-filled and fruitful lives beyond and despite and even because of their pain and its triggers. I think it was Warren Wiersbe who said this, Christ himself refuses to forget the scars of this earthly pain, even in glory. Because in Revelation 5, verse 6, he says, And I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Christ is the one who bought and signifies the breakability of the chains of death. We may not feel the full weight of that hope today, but we will one day. Job chapter 7, I cannot keep from speaking. I must express my anguish. My bitter soul must complain. Am I a sea monster or a dragon that you must place me under guard? I think my bed will comfort me and sleep will ease my misery. But then you shatter me with dreams and terrifying me with visions. I would rather be strangled, rather die than suffer like this. I hate my life and I don't want to go on living. Oh, leave me alone for my few remaining days. And thus we end with the words in 2 Corinthians that we read in the beginning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. As your people, we are grateful that we have you to turn to, and we know, Lord, that you will be there for us. We are thankful, Lord, that you do understand what we've been through. We thank you, Lord, that you are able to identify with what we've been through. We thank you, Lord, that you don't gloss over the trauma that we've experienced. We thank you, Lord, that you not only entered into suffering on our behalf, but, Lord, that you offer and give to us a very real deliverance, a very real healing, that you give us your grace, your strength that we need to resolve these issues, that you give us the ability to carry the amount of pain that you desire us to carry. And at times, Father, in glorious moments, we get a glimpse of heaven when we have those times when we are not experiencing any of the pain and any of the trauma. And we thank you, Lord, that there is a day coming that we can count on when all of this will be done away with, when there will be no more trauma. Not only will there be no more trauma being exercised against others, but Lord, there's a day coming when all the trauma of the past will be gone and the healing will be absolute and complete in every way. Lord, how we long for that day and how we look forward to that day. Help us, Father, not only as individuals to long for that day as well, but Father, help us to realize again the greatness of the hope that we have within us and that the many, many people that we know that are suffering like we do Help us to realize, Father, that we do have the answer for them. Even though we may not be a therapist, even though, Father, we may not be their childhood friend, Father, we can give to them the hope of life, the very real comfort that comes from Jesus Christ himself. Father, I pray that you would help us to at least live our lives as if we have experienced the true hope of Christ, that, Lord, it would lend credibility to the pleas that we offer to those when we share the gospel. We thank you that we have something to share. We thank you we have something to say. We thank you, Father, we have something to give. How wonderful that is. 
May we, Father, throughout this day reflect on the greatness of your kindness, of the healing that we have experienced thus far, and of the healing that we look forward to in the very near future. We do ask these things, Father, in the powerful and in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.